Grandstand Cricket. With a splendid innings for New Zealand, but they are all out for 372. Another test is done and dusted. Now it's time for some post-match parlay with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. The Final Word with ABC Grandstand. Hello and welcome to the Final Word podcast after the day-night test in Adelaide with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. We're writers and broadcasters for ABC Grandstand. Last time we recorded this pod, Jeff, we had a consonant between us. This time we have bit of meter. We should be at Adelaide watching day four of the Adelaide test, but instead we're, we're sitting in a small little studio in Melbourne. Yeah, but I feel great. I've, I, I have a post-euphoric glow, right? We've had this amazing three days. We had a sort of nice late start this morning, wandered back home, and just sort of sitting there basking, feeling uh, glowy, feeling warm, feeling that sort of rosé colour of the cricket ball that we've been watching for the last few days. It's real naysayers be gone stuff. There's this proof of concept. It was vital they got this right. They wouldn't get a second chance had they stuffed up the pink ball test at first time of asking. And they have. This, this was a raging success. The Adelaide crowd embraced it. Over 127 people came through the gates. TV numbers were crazy. I'm sure radio likewise. And it just worked from the start. Nothing went wrong. Absolutely. It's, it's really awkward, actually. Like, I feel like I've been writing Cricket Australia press releases <laughs> for the last few days because everything went so well. And, you know, on the one hand, that's strange. On the other hand, it's actually really nice to have a good news story and, and to not be sort of... You can fall into the trap of looking for negative things when you're trying to find something to write about. But, uh, you know, in this case, there's nothing negative to report. How about the anticipation of the last hour each day? That was the real highlight for me. After dark, there were well, I think it was 14 wickets taken over the three days, but especially the way in which everyone knew, the way it was talked about, it's like, oh, they should bat longer here in order to get to the night session, get the new ball at night. It's a new element to cricket tactics that we haven't had before. And Absolutely. Something that's quite, yeah. yeah, it's completely captivating. Well, it's brought in this, this whole new aspect. And, you know, we were sitting there watching the game. Uh, I think they had the spinner bowling sort of before the dinner break, and Simon Caddick just sitting there in a box. He's, he's going, what are they doing? They should be bowling the quicks. Drag it out, make the overs as long as they can, and, you know, push the overs into the last session. And I sort of looked back at him, and he just had this huge grin on his face like he loved the idea of just tweaking the rules as hard as he could to, to try to eke out some advantage yeah. Uh, yeah. well I mean before the game Brendan McCullum foreshadowed that trying to use that additional half an hour that's, that's available to the bowling team if they don't get their overs in, in time we didn't really see it but I think that's going to be a feature of pink ball test going forward seeing what we have in Adelaide this week that is trying your very hardest to backload your overs as much as you can in that last, you know, I guess hour and a half after it gets very dark. But then, like, you know, not stuff it up and sort of accidentally leave overs unbold because you've left <laughs> too many to the end. And then you're going to have people getting cranky about it and saying, oh, something's got to be done to stop teams, you know, manipulating the, the overs in this way. Like, imagine if Stuart Broad's doing it in an Ashes test. You know, there would just be howls around the country. Oh, oh the theatre would be wonderful. I quite look forward to that. But the ball was good too. I mean, we, before the game, a big part of this was, look, they're going to get people through the gates. They're going to have people watching on TV as we see before, but will the ball hold up to scrutiny? We got a chance to look at the ball after day one and have a bit of a play around with it on video. And I mean, it didn't look like it was 65 overs old even. It looked even better nick than that. Absolutely. It looked like one of the better sort of balls that you fish out of the bag, you know, down at a club warm-up or something. Oh, yep. yeah. You get that ball if you're the opening bowler at training on a Tuesday night. You're very happy with that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, nice sheen on it. And look, I don't think there were there were lowish scores. Like 66 was the highest score in the game, but I don't think it was too fast landed in favour of the ball. I think it was just there were particularly some garbage shots from both sides in their first innings, especially. With probably five or six guys on either side got themselves out rather than being got out in that first inning. So, you know, if someone had really knuckled down and batted longer, they mightn't have had that sort of skew. I guess the familiarity or lack of familiarity with these conditions, Simon Cadditch was saying yesterday as well, it's not so much about the ball hooping around massively, although it did at times. It was more about the fear that it may. So, as he said, if you, if, if you think your number might be up with a screamer, you tend to go at the ball harder from the get-go. And I think that was the evidence 
moments we saw where players are just less used to, especially in Australia, less used to playing in these conditions. And I like also as part of that, we've all become experts on how long the grass should be on the pitch. <laughs> What's, you know, there's 10 millimetres of grass left on this wicket relative to four usually and six at other times and various other yep. measurements when really we're talking about like literally a couple of millimetres and yet that seems to have been the, the, the measure that people are adjudicating whether this is a good pitch or not. Oh, everybody's an expert on everything at these particular times. You know, you notice this around the Olympics and like suddenly your mates are going, yeah, well, the thing about archery is it's all about keeping <laughs> your wrists still. You know, it's just, it's such absolute crud. Like they're just spinning their wheels and coming out with whatever they can. Melbourne Cup each year, everyone knows about the horses, you know. Oh, yeah, this, oh, I've got to get on this. Um, hang on, let me just check my phone guide. <laughs> shut up, just shut up. Classic. But the, uh, I, I guess it's put Cricket Australia in a fairly bullshy reforming mood. James Sutherland spoke to the ABC before play on day two, as he does in every test match with Jared Whateley, and he said that now the next uh, the next mountain to climb will be four-day test matches. So the idea being that you lengthen the four days, play into the evening session, meaning they don't have to play on a fifth day, which has been commercially uh, problematic for Cricket Australia in recent years. Yeah, it's really interesting. This uh, You get this conspiracy theory all the time that administrators want five-day tests and, and they order the groundsman to make roads so they get five-day tests. And then Sutherland says, actually, we lose money on the fifth day, so we'd really like to have a four-day test. Look, it could work. I mean, that's pretty much the format they use in women's test cricket at the moment. Mm. Uh, you have four days, but you squeeze in more overs. So they have 100 overs a day rather than 90. You get through 440 um, in, uh, you know, sorry, 400 um, yep. in the four days. I don't do numbers very well. So they kind of lose half a day's worth of overs. Now, the suggestions are maybe you could even cram in sort of 110 overs into a day. That's the 440 I was thinking of. Sure. Um, and you're not actually losing a whole lot of overs out of the match. Well, it's only if they play 100 a day, that's only four short of what they play in, in first-class cricket in England and Australia anyway. So I think there's a strong case for that. And the other element that he raised is uh, is looking at eliminating draws and having a league table, which is something Wally Edwards, the outgoing chairman, fancies for one-day cricket. But it seems like, just in general, that cricket administrators are in, in a reformist kind of mood at the moment, which is kind of exciting. We, we should be embracing that. Yeah, they've got some swagger up because you know this thing's gone well. But you're always going to have to go back to the start to try to convince people on the next thing. Um, and immediately, you know, I'm kind of going, oh, I don't know, oh, four days, oh, this and that. But we go, oh, it's tradition. But then actually, you know, I was looking back over some of the uh, previous matches at Adelaide Oval to see if there'd ever been a three-day test there before. There was one in 1951, the West Indies beat us. Um, <clears throat> but there were so many games. There's like, this game went six days, this game went seven days, mm. this game went four days. You know, there's been no consistency in test cricket ever. Like, we've had five-day tests for probably the last, what, 20 years. It's well, been pretty much the standard, but... Well, it goes with a lot of things. People talk about the traditional Boxing Day test. That's only been a feature in the last 30 or so years as well. It it used to be a Sheffield Shield game and, you know, the the developments in the game we spoke about around the pink ball, it was, we didn't have protective equipment, anything like we do now. Covered covered wickets is another major one. Developments in the game, which we now take as for granted, but they would have been far more revelatory than, or revolutionary rather, than what colour the ball is and what time the game is. That 1951 test finished on Christmas Day. Yeah, well, there you go. The West Indies chased 233 on Christmas Day. You know, no one was... Oh, traditional Boxing Day test in Melbourne did not start the next day, I can tell you that. One thing I would say, though, we've got to ship Cricket Australia for, for last... Next year, we had scheduled into the Future Tours program the fabled seven-test summer, which we've oh, been... We were looking summer forward, of dreams. We were seven, imagine that, seven test matches across from November through to, I guess, January. Yep. And, and unfortunately, CA have decided at a board meeting last week to cut the fourth test that was mooted for South Africa, the leading test-playing nation. And I think that's a that's pause for thought as well about, you know, there, there's been some really good things this week, but that's something that I, I struggled to come to terms with. Yeah, my super positivity towards CA, um, now just maybe coming to a close with that. 
I do not understand how you can have the best team in the world coming and say, oh, we don't want to play as many matches as possible against them. I don't understand how you can say, let's have the West Indies this year for three mm. tests. Let's have South Africa next year for three tests. You know, like they don't even give them an extra game. And it's not about giving them an extra game. It's about giving us an extra game, giving spectators an extra game. People want to see a proper series because, you know, you could have a, a real good old-fashioned kind of arm wrestle over four test matches and it could be a, a modern classic. Those three test series, you know, they always feel just a little short. And it's not without precedent. In the UK, they, they typically play seven tests per summer and it's something they have done in Australia before. So it is disappointing that we're yeah. only going to have the world. And there's an intellectual inconsistency to it as well as Absolutely. far as that idea that the West Indies and South Africa are worth the same amount. And also the logic CA provided when they first talked about this last year, which was that the South Africans were being rewarded for a consistent run of good form against Australia in Australia and now they're like oh don't worry about that we just like six tests better yeah exactly oh, and also just the idea of like that you can reward another test like how condescending is that to go <laughs> oh, you're the number one test side in the world good on you good on you oh good for you guys you've done really well I'll come <laughs> and I've got a special extra treat for you okay well we don't actually have that but I'm just no, get stuffed like, what is that where is that coming from <laughs> hey we'll go back to the Adelaide test real quick so um, I, I would argue that this test was effectively won by excellent fast bowling from the Australian side both on day one and on day two, leading into day three. Now, you know, Peter Siddle took his 200th wicket, but it was the persistence and the line and length he bowled to Kane Williamson, which just reinforced what a huge omission he was through the middle part of that Ashes series this year. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he's got that ability to crank up the pressure. You know, he, he brings the angry pills. Uh, we all heard about how he doesn't bowl fast enough, but it doesn't matter. Like, he, he gets the ball down there, he stops people scoring, and he helps other bowlers get people out. And we'll talk about that lack of pace a little bit later on in the show, but uh, Mitchell Stark it remains a, a critical strike bowler, three for 24. He took the big wickets. He took um, wickets in at the start of his spell on two occasions, on the third ball indeed, on, uh, in his second and third spell, I think it was. But now he's going to be missing until February when Australia travels to New Zealand. That's a huge omission and there's going to be a, a raft of players who are in contention when that squad's named tomorrow. Now, I mean, there's there's obviously James Pattinson is already in, this, in the 12, but Nathan Coulter-Nile, I didn't expect that. That, that came from nowhere for me uh, when really? Craig McDermott oh, said... Oh, no, they love him. They, they, they tee him up for everything. You know, he's, he's been just on that scene for probably five years as just one of those fringe players. You but, know they want to get them playing. But with the white ball, I've not, I've not really heard yeah. him in test contention. When, but then again, it seems like he's going to be the favoured quick and Craig McDermott said, provided he can keep his mouth shut, he could be a show for getting in the 12. Uh, and then we've got um, Joel Paris, the left armour from WA. Admittedly, he's only played one first-class game, but he's... Highly rated by the powers that be. And Jackson Bird, another five wickets for Tasmania over the weekend, had a fantastic start to the Shield season. And his brief cameo with the baggy green was a very strong one in 2012-13 and that one test in England in 2013 as well. So Yeah, I mean, from a practical standpoint, I say to just save an airfare. You know, you've got Jack Bird in Hobart. It's his home deck. Like, he knows how to bowl there. He's just taken a bunch of wickets there. You know, pop him in for a test, see what happens. He's very similar in, in composition to Josh Hazelwood, who was really quite outstanding in that second innings at Adelaide. He needed to to step up in the absence of Stark and lead the attack, and that's precisely what he did with his career best figures of six far. Uh, look, that, that was a—he was probably on the cusp of being drops for James Pattinson for this test. Darren Lehman alluded to as much in the post-game show yesterday with Jared and the guys on the ground. Uh, it, it really says that he's the sort of bloke they could build an attack around for the next ten years. Well, that's sort of how he looked when he came in last summer. We thought, and I think Hazelwood needs to be treated more as an attack leader. Unless as a, you know, mm. people see him as this kind of dependable stock bowler. He's not that. He's quicker than that. He's taller than that. He's got this high angle. He swings the ball. He seems to ball. He's dangerous. And, and I reckon he really took strides when Stark was out and it was like, 
job's on you, mate. Like, it's your job to now come in and lead the attack and win the game, and he did. Darren Lehman has a series of rules that he likes to apply to the Australian side, and I think we should investigate these somewhat in the context of those Australian bowlers. 140 kilometres an hour he wants them bowling, 140 clicks are out. Shouldn't that mean that Peter Siddle, a bowler who seldom hits that mark, should be ma- should be packing his bags and uh, going back to Shield cricket? Are you trying to say that there is some inconsistency in the <laughs> message from on Australia's selections? Because I, for one, cannot believe that. Well, there was a really great piece of writing this week in, on Crick Info by Dan Bredick, which went through a series of quotes from Lehman when, when Siddle was chops last year, which talked about his lack of pace being the, the prime reason why he was being left out of the Australian side. And then when they got back from the Ashes this year, saying how critical it was that we had greater control for our seam bowlers. It was this, <laughs> this chasm between the, yeah. the two arguments that, was being, that were being made. And One of these things is not like the other. Well, well, precisely. I mean, again, on that logic, Siddle would be making way. But how do you reconcile those two things? You don't. You can't reconcile those two things. They're completely contradictory. But then it's the kind of thing that Darren Lehman does. And and it's the kind of thing that's evidence in, say, Nathan Coulter-Niles kind of next in because he bowls fast. He doesn't bowl that well. He doesn't get that many wickets. Like, he hasn't particularly done anything that leads you to believe he'll be a successful test bowler. But they want him in, the same as they had Pat Cummins circling around the test squad during the Ashes in England, you know, who hadn't played first-class cricket in about 10 mm. years. <laughs> it, it, it's just this obsession with pace. It doesn't make any sense. And the pairing of Stark and Johnson in the Ashes didn't work. It's a big part in why the Ashes were lost, because they didn't bowl well together. And there's a second rule, which has been they want to have a fifth bowler courtesy of the number six batting spot. So in the absence of Shane Watson, they want to have Mitchell Marsh batting at six. And Mitchell Marsh hasn't come under a huge amount of scrutiny yet in his fledgling test career. He's obviously a player who's going to play for a very long time for a, in, in international um, international fields. But he he now is reaching that point where I think people are going to ask the question, are we better served going back to a traditional number six that we, I guess, grew up with? You think about what number six used to be in the Australian lineup. Ricky Ponting batted number six. It was the apprenticeship spot. Damian Martin batted number six. Indeed, Darren Lehman, as you pointed out to me a, a little while ago, batted number six. And some great players in there. And, and often those sort of fill-in players, you know, Martin Love, guys like that, would come in and, and fill that role. But it was a proper, solid batsman. Mike Hussey played a lot of his career at number six and he put out a lot of fires for the Australian batting lineup. Now, if you don't have someone at six who can do that, you're leaving yourself pretty vulnerable in all kinds of conditions. We saw Mitch Marsh bat well on debut in the Emirates. He made 80-something... Uh, 87. On, a, on, a, on quite a slow deck with a bit of turn, and he seemed to play those conditions well, but um, when there's a little bit of movement, he seems lost. The, the Chris Rogers critique is that he's too upright. He doesn't get his uh, face or his, his, his helmet above his front pad enough, which exposes him to uh, not moving his foot sufficiently well against the moving ball. Now, you know, we're not technical experts by any stretch of the imagination, but if it's coming from Chris Rogers about your technique, that seems to carry a lot more water. And I, I do wonder whether they'll consider... Play- I know Faulkner's out of the domestic setup at the moment due to injury, but it's not as though James Faulkner hasn't performed repeatedly uh, with the white ball for Australia. Oh, it's magnificent under pressure with the white ball, but it's a very different sort of pressure, and it'd be interesting to see how he'd respond sort of coming in at, you know, four or five for 80 in a test match as opposed to needing to get 40 off the last three overs in an ODI. Instructively, Darren Lehman indicated last night in his post-game interview that Peter Neville could be on the way to number six at the... At, at, in the expense of Marsh and Marsh shuffling down to seven and being a more traditional fifth bowler. But again, that was unheard of until recent years. You wouldn't have a, an attack with five bowlers of which one wasn't a 
one wasn't batting in the top six. So again, it, it feels to me a fraction unbalanced, especially against a more penetrative bowling lineup. Look, I guess what they're looking at is that their bowling lineup's not that strong. You know, now back in the day, if you had Warren McGrath plus a couple of the others floating around there, you only needed four bowlers. You could get away with that, and you know, a few offies from Mark War or whatever. <laughs> but they kind of need that extra support bowler now because they want to do things like play this battery of really fast bowlers. They go, oh yeah, Stark, Johnson, Cummins, let's play them all, and then they sort of need a guy like Marsh who can have a bit more, a bit of control, a bit slower and just fill in a few overs here and there. Now his brother Sean Now we, we spoke at great length about his selection last week for good reason because it was, again, there were, there were some inconsistencies that underpinned him being selected ahead of other players but well, look, let's deal with his first innings first. He was run out, and uh, on the coverage, the, the the assessment was that he wasn't assertive enough in his call, and that's something that Chris again raised, saying that he'd, he'd spoke to him in England over the winter about being more aggressive and more angry about the way he calls between the wickets, and that was lacking in that, in that mix-up with Steve Smith. It, it was down to nerves, right? You don't run yourself out like that unless you're nervous, unless you've got something going wrong in your head saying, you don't know what you're doing, you're hesitant, you're in two minds, and he ran himself out. That's why I thought it was really impressive. Then in the second innings, he comes in under real pressure. It's three for 66. The ball's moving. He's facing good bowling. Um, and, you know, he knows that this is absolutely make or break. And he was the one who, who dug in. He only made 49, but in the context of that chase, it was a massive, massive effort. Um, and, you know, I feel, I feel good for him. I, I don't... Like, I've spoken very, very strongly against his selection, and I stand by that because his selection is inconsistent. He shouldn't have been selected based on any of the uh, logic that's been handed down from the selectors or the lack of logic. Um, but as a, as a person, as a human story, seeing him do well under pressure, you know, you have to feel happy for him. Yeah, that human story, the, the reaction of his parents, uh, particularly his father, Jeff Marsh, the former Australian coach and opening batsman and vice-captain indeed, when he was dismissed by a run-out, that, that, oh, no, were the first words, and he slapped himself on the thigh a couple of times, and you could just see that visceral pain that he was feeling on behalf of his of his son, and and, and Mitch getting out about a quarter of an hour later uh, at a crucial time as well. Is He must have absolute despair. He must have been in for his two sons. But Absolutely. Then the story they, of redemption later that day. They Mitch, put on 46 together. Yeah, well, Mitch bowled really well in the second innings. And, and Sean, of course, when he came out to bat, oh, well, when, they, when he came out to bat, I think all most Australian cricket fans were thinking this could go awfully wrong. Oh, the here. collapse was on. The collapse was absolutely on. Three for 66. Warner and Smith are both gone. You're two key players. Marsh is out there nervously. Mitch Marsh comes out pretty soon after, uh, after the dinner break at sort of mm. four for 115 at that point, you're like, yeah, it's on. Collapse is on. We're going to lose this, for sure. Uh, but he batted beautifully. And this, yeah. this is the enigma that is Sean Marsh. When he's in good nick, he looks like he could bat for bat for the world. He, he, yeah. he, is, he, he is a glorious player with great timing and great placement. Yeah. It just, it's just an all-too-frequent occurrence. And it's it, just it, one innings in 20, you know. That's right. And even his dismissal rem- reminded us all, oh, that's right, that's Sean Marsh, like guiding that ball into the cordon yeah. with the angled with bat. With like three slips there as well. And he goes, <laughs> I might just run this down to third man for one. It's it's not the 37th over in the World Cup. Like, what, what are you thinking? And uh, well, when he came out to bat and they put five slips in that's fairly yeah. indicative of uh, how they how they rated his capacity but even so 49 runs for the better and that crucial partnership with his brother he'll certainly retain his spot for Hobart and even though I think we would both still agree that it's a misstep in the long term planning to have a player like Sean Marsh in the 11 you, you can be nothing but happy for him on a human level exactly and it, like, it was really good watching the way New Zealand went about that stuff as well particularly towards the end when the game was almost gone they had seven slips in mm. you know they were not giving up even with only two runs needed uh, for Australia to 
win. New Zealand needed three wickets. They were still on the attack. So there was a really heartening sort of uh, element from them in the way they went about their play. But, you know, quite a few mistakes were made as well, which which have been a bit overlooked in, in people uh, praising the Kiwis for how they played. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of angry with New Zealand for having consistently faltered in the big moments during the series. Like we expected an absolute cracking test series. And sure, this was a great test match in Adelaide, albeit one played over yep. three days. And they recovered admirably in Perth in the second dig. But... Mm-hmm. Let's let's call it for what it is. They choked in Brisbane. Uh, they they continued that on for day one in Perth. And the big moments in Adelaide, they faltered. Now, you, and we'll come to the DRS decision in a moment, which was so controversial. But let's go to that second inning. Is that drop catch when the ball was skied up in the air by Stephen Smith yep. and dropped by Santner? I don't think many people thought he was going to take that because they've consistently um, failed when, yep. the, when the heat was on. Now, it didn't mean a lot for scoreboard-wise when he dropped that catch because Smith went out a couple of overs later. But symbolically, it, it reflected to me a sense they didn't ever feel like they were quite good enough. Yeah, and it, it, it did make a little difference because Smith and Warner probably put on another 20, I reckon, sure. between, yeah. between that drop and, and being dismissed. And in the context of that innings, that did actually have some significance. But you could see that Santner was going to drop it. As soon as the catch went up, I sort of muttered to myself, he's dropping that because his feet were going everywhere. You know, he was sort of treading water under the ball. And you just know sometimes when a guy's not going to take the chance. Um, you know, they, they got Smith after that. But it, it's the way that they didn't recover from the DRS controversy. Absolutely. You know? And that needs full full examination here, the DRS, but you're right. They didn't recover from that. They, they didn't recover well in the first test and they, and they, and they and you know, Satna is clearly a player of promise. His debut innings, both innings, he batted quite forcefully and looks like he's got the capacity to bat number six at Tesla. They wouldn't have had a test without him. I mean, he made 45 in the second, 31 in the first. New Zealand would not have been in the game without his batting. Well, that's right. He, he ended up being their most important player throughout. But they had Australia on the rack. Yep. Eight for 117. Yep. Um, they ran through them either side of the, I guess it was the tea break on day two. They could have gone in with a very healthy first innings lead. And then, Jeff, one of the... I've seen a lot of cricket. I, I can't think of many worse decisions. Certainly, it's the worst call I've seen where technology's been involved. Would, would you agree with that? It's very close. Yeah, there was... Look, there was the Ashton Agar one from 2013 as sure. well when there was no hot spot. I don't think they had Snicko at that point, but mm. there was... There was some suggestion of a sound, and and it, he'd been given not out, and Tony Hill overturned it and gave him out based on the fact that he thought he heard a noise on the replay, which was very very soft and inconclusive. Well, but I'd say this one was worse. Yeah, my word, it this was. This one was worse because keep the technology out of it. Just looking at a standard replay, you can see him hit the ball. It deviates he up hits towards the ball. his. It deviates up towards the, the towards his maybe towards he's, his shoulder. He's sweeping, and it comes off the sort of back of the bat into his shoulder, goes to slip. He hits it. You can see it on one replay. One front on replay. And How do you not see that as an umpire? I mean, it really was lend itself to parody when you saw the deliberations being yeah. undertaken by Nigel Long when he said that, well, that could have been, what was it? It could have been a flash. The, the hot spot. He goes, hot oh, spot. there's something on the hot spot, but that could have been anything. He goes, that, that could have been anything. That could have come from anywhere. You know, <laughs> but no, it couldn't. Like, where did it come from? Like, did a, a passing bumblebee collect the edge of the bat? Like, what do you think happened out there? But, but, but I mean, again, that, that same. Benchmark could be yeah. used for any number of leg before decisions that are either overturned or given based on whether hotspot picks up the edge or not on the it's inside. Just from edge now on, any time there's a mark on hotspot, oh, it could have been anything. Could have been anything, and I felt, I felt, I felt for him because clearly he was. I think there might have been a bit of dare I say like confirmation bias. He was yes. unsure he because the decision was not out on the field. He yep. felt that he needed to have absolutely conclusive evidence. And owing to the fact that Snicko didn't pick it up for whatever reason, and you know we're not because it's a soft sound from the back of the bat. It's not a hard click of an edge. It's the bat. The, the ball's probably already collected a bit of the pad, and then mm. it's hit. It's sort of rolled the bat. off almost. But it's not. It, it's, a, it's not going to. It's not going to snick. You know, it, it, of course. 
Like, Snicko doesn't have to pick up everything, and just because there's no Snicko doesn't mean it's not out. And there's a very interesting piece in Crick Info, which has gone up again, which talks about Jeff Allardyce, who's like the ICC's cricket czar, if you like, a couple of years ago, reflecting on how Hotspot would interact with Snicko. And the attitude taken two years ago was, if there was conclusive evidence with Hotspot, they wouldn't even go to Snicko. Yeah. The decision would be given out. Yes, because you can see that it's hit the bat. But, you know, you don't know, need to go to Hotspot when you've got a replay that shows the ball hitting the bat. I mean, that's what I keep coming back to. And the, the bit of audio from Nigel Long uh, speaking about the decision, it's like he's trying to convince himself mm. not to give it out. It's like he's trying to talk himself into it, you know, like he's standing in a shop wanting to buy something that he really can't afford. And he's like, yeah, but, you know, I mean, it's like it's good quality. If you, <laughs> if you buy it now, it's going to last a lot longer. And, you know, if I get something cheaper, I'll probably have to get a replacement and then that'll be two of them. You know, it's, oh, like it's, the, really, it's like the Costco business model. Yeah. He's buy just, big, buy bulk. He's just trying to convince himself of something. You know, you see people doing this all the time with stupid ideas. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, maybe no. It's nah. just out. It's just out, mate. And it's it's regrettable that I mean, think of it. Like they go down there with a seventy-run lead. The reason why we harp on about this, by the way, and you might be thinking, why have they spent so much time to this one decision in the context of a match which was wrapped up in three days with lots of decisions? Yeah. It's that this was where the entire match hinged on. If this decision went the other way, we'd almost. Well, it's hard to say almost certainly. We'd very likely have a different result. In New Zealand's eighty-five runs behind at this point, and mm. they would have had one hobbled, hobbling Mitchell Stark to come out and he wouldn't have had the momentum that he had to come out sure. and start hitting sixes because um, he was nearly out first ball. He was given out first ball and then got it overturned from an LB. Correct. Now, if he got a, a Yorker or whatever, he's out. They've got an 85-run lead as opposed to a 22-run deficit. They win the test. Whole different game of cricket. But it was, and again, they, 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 I think the last thing I'll say about New Zealand was they suffered tactically. Uh, in, in, I think McCullum will, will, will regret... Um, his use of spin, overuse of spin in this match at crucial moments when they needed pace. But that comes back to selection. They chose to go for dual spinners. And when Bracewell and Bolt were operating from either end and they had to bring Southie on to replace Bolt, there was no quick to replace Bracewell. I mean, we were only 20 or so overs into the innings and they had to go to spin when it was entirely the wrong time to go to spin with a new Sean Marsh at the wicket. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, what is Sean Marsh going to nick? He nicks seam bowling outside off stump. It provided them with like this release valve of every other over they yep. were facing off spin, which is exactly what Adam Voges wanted, a bloke who plays spin bowling as well as anyone in the Australian setup uses the depth of the crease so well. And Mark Craig, a guy who bowls too short all the time. Like half of, half, well, just half of each over. He bowls three short balls and over. Yeah, he had a good cameo in the middle of day two, but on, on the whole, Mark Craig will be disappointed with his output on this tour. But this casting forward, Australia are in February for the return leg of this, I guess, you know, a dual series mm -hmm. for two test matches in, in it's Wellington and Christchurch, isn't it? Yes. Where we go to for the test. Now, like they, they, they would probably fancy themselves, I reckon, at least they're getting a result, a split result this time around. Well, I think, I mean, you look at how well Trent bowled, bowled in that final innings, you know, took five for 60. Um, and he's such a slight guy. Like I sort of saw him walk into the hotel bar the, the evening after the match finished and I said to whoever I was with, you know, this is like, he looks like a sort of skinny hipster dude. He just <laughs> comes in, you're like, you wouldn't imagine he could bowl 100 kilometres now, let alone 140. Um, He's very slight, isn't he? Yeah. He's about five foot eight. Um, but it, he just, he swings the ball. He sends it down quickly. He moves it. You know, he was he was a bit down on pace this series, but... He's he's so dangerous at, when he's on, and we saw that in the World Cup. We saw it in those home conditions. If if they can swing, we've been saying this the whole series. If Saudi and Bolt start swinging the ball, that could be a handful. <laughs> but God, you'd hope that they're better able to do it on the home decks. Yeah, well, you, we see how hard it is to win away. In any event, it was a two nil series win for Australia. This is the final word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins, ABC Grandstand.
Well, wrapping up the final word podcast, Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Of course, we have the West Indies three test matches starting next week in Hobart on the 10th of December, to be precise. Jeff, what can we expect? Well, we've all talked it down a bit and said it'll be a rubbish <laughs> series, but uh, maybe it won't be. I don't know. Like maybe there's we're big wraps on Jason Holder. We like him. Um, there, it's a pretty similar team from what we saw in the West Indies. There are there are some guys in there with a bit of grit. Shane Dorich, yep. we like the look of Craig Braithwaite. We like the look of Shy Hope's a talent. Yep, well, I mean, people will enjoy watching Shy Hope back. There's you know, and there's talent in the. Uh, West Indies fast bowling ranks. Shannon Gabriel did a couple of good things. He's uh, quick. And they've got, of course, Bish, the Bish, yep. not, not Ian Bishop, Devendra Fisher coming out the leg spinner. Turning them square, yeah. ball of the century. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, he may struggle a bit more in Hobart. <laughs> you know, I'm not sure how much grip and purchase the leg he gets down there. But oh, I think the best thing about this being on Boxing Day and New Year's Day, to, well, Boxing Day and, and the New Year's Test are two staples of the Australian summer, is there'll be the appropriate scrutiny over West Indies cricket. I think it's a bit of a, if you don't see it, if it's pushed to one side, you can kind of disregard the fact that this is an enormous problem for international cricket. The slide of the, the West Indies over the last 20 years has been a, a real problem and I think that um, one way to help address it will be the bulk of the cricket world watching them on Boxing Day mm. more than likely copying a touch-up. But is there any use? Like, we talk this over every time the West Indies play anyone and get beaten badly. We just go over this same thing of like, oh, isn't it sad? Oh, you remember, hey, you're you aware that they used to be really good? Oh, yeah, they used to be really good. Yeah, they had some guy. Remember yeah, Clive Lloyd? He was pretty good. Oh, yeah, Viv Richards, he was pretty good. Yeah, we know. Like, we know. There's no point having the same conversation. What are we going to achieve? Like, oh, oh, Look, I, I think that this might be a bit different. I, I agree that when Whenever they play, they're, they're subjected to that kind of critique. But this will be like everyone watches the Boxing Day Test, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I understand that it would have been better, and Cricket Australia has said it would have been better had New Zealand been playing in it. But just accept the reality of what we've got now. This will be, you know, probably a lopsided test series, but one that hopefully can have some broader utility for West Indies cricket. You've just got to be positive about it. There's no option, I think. If we just get down in the dumps about it being a rubbish series, and I think that it'll make for a very, fairly dreary three test matches. Can we just somehow put some pressure on Steve Smith that if he wins a toss, just uh, just send him in? Just let him bat first. Well, maybe right. maybe, maybe, this, maybe this feeds into what we saw during the week with uh, the toss being relegated to uh, maybe once a series and, and it being an alternative thing or having the away team always picking who what they get to do first. So maybe this could be the, the perfect time for CA to roll it out. I, I think we like there's that sense of frustration, say, you know, in Brisbane and in Perth, Australia wins the toss and bats, and you basically go, yeah, that probably the result's been decided, or probably New Zealand's not going to win from here. You know, particularly, say, half an hour into each test, you're like, no, nah, definitely not New Zealand winning. I don't want to keep seeing that with them playing the West Indies. I don't want to see them racking up 600, making the West Indies field for two days and then sticking them in because what's going to be achieved? Yeah, let's see something different. Of course, Warney reckons there should be a day-night test played every test every match test. And, and starting off at Melbourne on Boxing Day. So good on you, Warney, for having a go and always keeping things interesting, Warnie, I guess. Warney just put a manifesto out that just put everybody's ideas from <laughs> yeah, the last three weeks. That's right. <laughs> he went, oh, we should have four-day tests with no draws, uh, points, points wins awarded yeah. on count back, uh, day and night and uh, it's I, like when he put out that uh, that that manifesto a couple of years ago, yeah. which said that coaches in cricket were irrelevant, and proceeded to name half a dozen coaches <laughs> who should be appointed, pretty much as his mates, <laughs> giving them all a gong on the CA payroll. That's just about enough from us, I think, for another week. Jeff Lemon, Adam Collins have been with you here on the Final Word podcast. We'll be back with you in Hobart in a couple of weeks. 